Oh, welcome to a, a special edition of the Art Business Podcast. Uh, today I have a special guest who's uh, agreed at very late notice um, to uh, speak with myself and Alina Grubb, who's a, 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 an alumna of the MA Art Business course at Sotheby's Institute of Art um, and uh, is, is Ukrainian, has a lot of connections with the, the Ukrainian uh, world and the Ukrainian art world. Um, and you might remember uh, uh, in March, on March the 9th, I did a, an earlier podcast with um, uh, Badam Misur, apologies for my Ukrainian, uh, who's curator of the Museum of Modernism in Lviv. And uh, Elena was also at that meeting. But today we, we're very lucky to have um, uh, Bjorn Geldof, who is uh, who is now um, curator or director at the Pinchuk Art Center in in Kiev. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll be talking about that in, in a little while. But I, I first would just like Alina, um, with her knowledge of uh, of what's happening in the Ukrainian world and the, the, the Ukrainian art world in particular, just to maybe update us on what's happened since um, Badan talked about to us about the uh, what was happening in Lviv. You you might remember that uh, they were having to make very quick, urgent contingency plans in in case of uh, with, with the invasion happening. Um, and uh, there, there were also we we learnt uh, not only that were they storing important works of art in safe places, but they were also taking in art. I think from other Ukrainian artists who who'd. Um, who'd moved to Lviv uh, because of the war and uh, they, they were storing some of their art. Anyway, over to you, Alina. Perhaps you could just update us with some of the key things that have happened, particularly in the art world in Ukraine since then. Thank you very much, David. And uh, thank you very much for doing this podcast and updating everyone uh, in the art world about the Ukraine. Um, it's because, as we've spoken to you before and you've mentioned it, the, it's been already more than six months and people are weary about this information, of course, but um, of course, the, we're still in the, in the, in the war. And it's, uh, we are incredibly grateful that this podcast is going on and, and the listeners would know about the updates in the situation. Um, since we talked about Dan, the situation kind of like flattened out a little bit in the sense that um, first, um, of course, the museums were all closed and um, all the artworks were put underground and into safe places. But it appears that in the art world, the um, um, it's kind of became clear that this war is not going to be a very quick um, thing to finish and people decided they do need to live their life and uh, mostly that art need to go on that we cannot shut down for um, a year or two years and that artists do need to perform because they do create their works and the works are relevant and they are about the current situations and their reflections and they would appreciate um, to be shown and to be heard um, so the Lviv it is very good to hear the Lviv Museum of Modernism has reopened as well um, and the um, exposition, I think, um, uh, Bordan is, I think, getting a lot of invitations to travel um, to museums in Europe um, to showcase. And we will see how that goes, because it's, at the moment, um, for the art business, for example, word, it would be interesting to hear the logistical problems, right, about trying to um, organize it logistically during the time of war, and especially accountability, because this is a technical force majeure event. So uh, legally, no one's really responsible for anything. Now, so that's a very interesting case to look at uh, for the insurance companies and for um, trying to arrange exhibitions from the country that is at war. Um, so that's good. And that has been from the art world. So 
it also has been a rise in domestic auctions and domestic exhibitions and um, there has been a rise in um, exhibitions abroad of Ukrainian art and Ukrainian artists. Um, I have also visited um, Art Basel um, this year and um, met with two galleries they, that had shows in Art Basel, which is Voloshin Gallery in Kiev, but this was not the main um, Art Basel, of course, this was for emerging artists uh, section. And um, there were two galleries from Kiev, the very young one who- um, Naked Room. Naked Room, yes, correct. Um, and the other one was Voloshin Gallery, who is kind of like standing gallery that were already exhibiting in the US. Um, and both of them told me that this year the prices have doubled for Ukrainian works. Um, and not necessarily because of the war, uh, Naked Room told me just because the works are good. <laughs> so which was also a pleasure to hear. Um, and um, so it's um, domestic auctions has been also very active. Um, the other maybe the problem for the art market is that um, as um, we, it was said before, uh, Russia, um, the Ukrainian works were always in the Russian sector of the international auctions, such as Sotheby's and Christie's. And now because Russian sales are closed, I think the artwork, I find it a little bit reluctant because but I haven't seen any other information on the contrary to separate and to continue with the Ukrainian works if they're closing the Russians. But at the moment, we are kind of shut off together with the whole lot. Um, uh, so there's nothing really going on and I'm not sure there is any sort of move to that. I think the art will just move on, moved on really. So I think these podcasts are also very um, important to understand that, I mean, you cannot just move on <laughs> in this situation. Um, and the third one, of course, um, uh, although there has been this, this very good news about reopening and exhibitions and the art been flourishing, there has been massive destructions of the artworks in the east and in the, um, in the southeast of Ukraine. And there are a lot of works in Mariupol. Of course, the Ukrainian authorities do not have access to them now, but um, important works and uh, mosaics and, of course, the public art, this all has been destroyed barbarically, continuing to be destroyed because um, there are a lot of memorials that Russians just, uh, what they're doing, they're just wiping the cultural ground. It's not the war for territory. It's literally something that really medieval um and um yeah so we expect there's a lot of loot i mean we don't know what's happening to the museum and i know the story about the artist from Kharkiv who was evacuated but his works were not and so there are plenty of things that are not accounted for and i think it's also for the art world it is important for um, anything coming of ukraine or ukrainian museums at the moment um to be very cautious about it and we know that foreign museums who have exhibitions with the still maybe with the Russians museums should be very cautious about Russians trying to exhibit these objects. Uh, Alina, um, just just if I could just ask one thing about that. Um, is there any evidence that the Russians are, um, are not only just destroying um, art of all periods, it sounds, you know, contemporary as well as, um, as, as older art, uh, but is there any evidence they're looting it because they think it's valuable? Well, it's it's uh, uh, even controversially, it's hard to tell because mm. there's no logic in what they're doing. As Bogdan Masuha has pointed out last time, we could understood, I mean, obviously, historically, we understood the logic of the Nazis who didn't like particular type of art, but particular type of art they were holding as a valuable. Although Russians seem to destroy their own art in Ukraine because there's a, a repin art and there's some other 
um, Russian art pieces and they're destroying them too, um, which does not make sense from that perspective. Um, looting, I'm sure they will be, but I don't think it's going to be official looting by the Russian authorities because from what we understand in Ukraine, it looks like it's really, you know, if they're stealing toilets, like in the yeah. bathrooms, and, you know, it's very... It's it very... doesn't. It doesn't sound as though there's like a Goebbels as there was with the Nazis who has a list of of desirable art objects that they, you know, it's basically just total want, wanton destruction of everything. It's just, exactly. just weird, yeah. And so I think if there's something would be looted, that that would probably would be sold by in the black market by some dealers. Yeah. It probably would be something like yeah. that. Um, yeah, it's just hard to know what's what's going on. Yeah, there are the reports. Yeah, looting, yeah. looting Scythian objects, uh, which has been a target, um, a specific target from uh, Russian forces. Sorry, could you which repeat object, yeah? what types of objects? Scythian, Scythian objects. Oh, Scythian? Yeah. Yeah, from the ancient Scythian civilization. That's yeah, because right. a lot of that will be like precious metal, uh, gold and, yeah. and, and so on. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And sorry, Alina, did you... I interrupted you slightly there. Uh, no, no, it's, I was just finishing because, I mean, you yes. can go on and on, but I yeah. think these are the two things. So on one hand, we have, as I've noticed, and it's very interesting actually to observe because there was a really high rise in sales and art. The prices went up. A lot of this was charity auctions. We yeah. cannot say about sustainable rise in commercial yeah. prices or anything. Yeah. But, um, and it's, you know, because of the war as well, the prices yeah. went up. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, and, and exhibitions are on the rise and auctions are on the rise, but on the other hand, there has been a devastating destruction with no logic of all sorts of art that would include not only Ukrainian heritage, that would include because um, um, like eastern, uh, southern Ukraine, which sounds like Kherson, which is Kherson-ness, it's a Greek city, um, and Mariupol, which is Mariupol, is a Greek city, Maria, mm. Mariupol. Yes, yes. Polis, yes, it's a Greek city mm. built by Greeks. So there's um, uh, just the destroying Greek, Ukrainian, Russian, their own, whatever. It does not make sense. But on the positive note, um, the Kiev has also, because Lviv is Westerner, so it's safer. Uh, they reopened a little bit earlier, but now when I think Pinchuk Art Center has recently reopened, that's a big deal. And I think these are good news that Kiev being stably on sort of on the safe side, but Bjorn perhaps can tell us a little bit more about it from the ground. Sure. Bjorn, I don't know whether how much time you have, but I, I was going to ask you just to for, for the listeners' sakes, just to say a little bit about your your own arts background, which I believe has been in Belgium mainly. Uh, and uh, uh, just but you know, maybe in a nutshell to say what you were doing before you you took the post in um, the, the Pinchuk Arts Centre in Kiev. Yeah, so I, I um, used to make a magazine called Janus, which was a magazine for arts and culture, worked as a, as a curator independently. And um, in 2009, I joined the Pinchukat Center. In 2015, I went to Azerbaijan, where I became director from, uh, of an organization called Yarat, museum called Yarat, while still being at the Pinchukat Center. And um, in 2019, I went back full time to Kiev. Yeah, so pretty international. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, I know that your 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 
your your work is is with contemporary art and uh, curating contemporary art exhibitions um so so what i was going to ask you is um um the exhibitions at the pinterick art center um maybe you could just talk about the activities there before the russian invasion earlier the, earlier this year um it's uh, one, one that particularly interested me although i didn't see it uh, was the democracy a new exhibition of yeah. 2019 maybe you could say a little bit about what was yeah. happening at the center before so what, the invasion i think what, what what's important if, if you look at the, the history of the center the, the center started from an institution that brought um kind of real overview exhibitions of blue chip artists um at that time art in general was very difficult um, to access for Ukrainians. Um, Ukrainians didn't have a visa-free policy to travel to Europe. Travel was expensive and um, Viktor Pinchuk made the decision to start in 2006 the Pinchuk Art Center. At that time, that was the only significant museum for contemporary art that existed in Ukraine. It also became immediately the biggest of Eastern Europe. And um, he started this with the belief that art has a possibility to change people's thinking. And it's a revolutionary force because it brings ideas into society that really revolutionize the way that people can view their own, their own future. And um, from that perspective, uh, Viktor Pinchuk started this, this idea of the Pinchuk Art Center Prize. He, he's a collector himself. Um, that meant that in the beginning, a lot, a lot of the programming followed also the collection. And um, at a certain point, he engaged Eckhard Schneider, um, who used to be the director of um, the Kunsthaus Bregenz. And uh, together with Eckhard, kind of the, the art center changed uh, into, into a direction that also tackled thematic exhibitions. Um, I, came, I came shortly after Eckhard in 2009. And, um, that's also the year that we started the Future Generation Art Prize, which was a very important um, element because um, it started after launching the Pinchuk Art Center Prize, which is basically the same model, but then for, for national artists. And both these prizes basically are very democratic principles where we invite all artists to apply online. One prize is national, the other one is international. And for the international prize, um, we've been doing it since 2009, and uh, the last edition had more than 12,000 applications from 183 different countries. So it really gives a real overview of what's going on in the art world, especially with emerging artists globally. And um, this prize not only brings 20 artists who are then shortlisted by a very you know, competent international jury um, together in Kiev, but also invests really in production of their work and brings them then later back to Venice. And we, we started all of that around 2009, 2010. And the reason to start this was really to innovate um, and to, to give it in a very powerful flux of energy to the Ukrainian art community. Because by bringing these 20 international um, young artists who are at the top of their game um, to Ukraine, to start the conversation with Ukrainian artists, which logically appears, really it, it, um, it gave such an input to the Ukrainian art scene that I think it, it brought it in very big jumps forward. And what was 
initially there in the prize was that the winner of the Pinchuk Art Center Prize, which is the same model, but for Ukrainian artists, yeah. was automatically shortlisted into the Future Generation Art Prize. So always we had this Ukrainian presentation there, which also served really as kind of a pressure um, to Ukrainian artists at that time to be able to, to, to stand alongside their international peers. And um, I think, again, this was, this was an original idea by, by the founder, by Viktor Pinchuk himself, and it brought in a very important component, which is still at the heart of what we're doing, which is emerging artists and supporting emerging artists throughout their career, not just as a single, a single event. Um, but going back to 2009, as I'm jumping a little bit, we launched this prize, but still we were doing these kind of international um, exhibitions that focus mostly on blue chip. And um, after, after the Maidan revolution, the revolution of dignity, uh, we realized that, you know, the country had changed. We were always thinking we're working towards civil society. Um, and before we knew civil society was standing up in front of us, which was a very beautiful moment because um, it really shows how a country changes and has the capacity to change. And at that moment, we also decided that as an institution, we have to follow. And um, that was the time that we shifted away from kind of these, these more solo driven exhibitions to thematic exhibitions as the one you mentioned, Democracy in You with a question mark, which are exhibitions that really try to connect um, to, to social political urgencies inside of the country. Um, but I don't think they're necessarily only related to Ukraine, there are more global questions that we're asking, but with a particular urgency in Ukraine, where we always invited, again, top international artists to A, make new work and to really commit to the question in Ukraine, while at the same time thinking about, about more, more, more global um, issues, and we include Ukrainian artists. So that, that became a new kind of a new kind of direction where we were on one hand focusing on these bigger thematic exhibitions with immediate social and political urgencies and on the other hand focused very strongly on Ukrainian art um, and emerging art and then the third pillar became the research platform and with the research platform we actually launched um, a, a living archive of Ukrainian art and historically speaking. So we went back to the 60s still today, we made an archive of what was being done as that didn't exist in the country. There was no one working on this um, particularly um, and especially not in an academic sense. So we brought a, a research team of 12 young researchers together who had the task to document and archive um, many of these uh, verbal stories, right? Especially, especially from that time you, you didn't have anything written down in a good way, but many of the actors were still alive. So um, that was an opportunity to go to them, to record their stories and to, to, you know, to fact check that, um, to put that together with the works and create uh, an archive that can, that can serve for next generations researching what Ukrainian art is really about and, and where, where it came from. That became a main pillar and um, it also became you know, a pillar for making exhibitions. So next to these bigger thematic exhibitions and, and the focus on emerging generations, both Ukrainian and international, we started working very um, consistently on uh, creating an idea of what Ukrainian art is and offering different readings into 
Ukrainian contemporary art history. So that's in a nutshell what we've been doing. And before the war um, started, we, we decided to take one next step in the evolution of, of the Pinchuka Art Center, where we said we're going to focus much stronger now on emerging artists and on this research platform and what follows out of it. So to make not only thematic exhibitions as we used to do, bringing many of the stars of the world together, but really saying we, we double down on this investment that we've been doing since 2009 in, in emerging artists and we get them more proactively to Kiev. So Kiev can also become this kind of hub where, um, where artists can experiment, uh, can develop new ideas and, and can do so in a thematic, with a thematic approach that makes sense for the, both the country and the global context. So that's where we, where we came from, uh, but of course the war changed a few things. I suppose the wonderful thing about having digital technology now, although it's awful to say it, you know, it does enable us to save, you know, cultural objects, albeit only digitally, um, but also archives and, and recordings, as you say, of interviews with artists, at least we can actually save some of that now, whereas obviously in the past before we had that, whole archives could get wiped out along with the works of art and the, the, the whole memory could get lost. So at least there, there, there's presumably, presumably you're using, you know, digital uh, a lot now for, for archives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we are digitizing. So we're, we're, we're actually had the policy of not keeping any physical archives uh, because many of these archives are in private hands. And um, as, as you might imagine, that brings a lot of a lot of questions about, you know, if, if yeah. as a private institution, you go and buy all these archives or not. So what we've done is, is having a very strategical decision of we're not going to keep anything physical, um, but we are going to digitize everything. And everything that we digitize, we also make freely available for any and all researchers that, that want to have access to that, which I think, um, you know, as a, as a private institution, which we still are, is the best kind of approach um, opposed to, which I think is a national assignment, archiving really all these objects and buying buying the archives that exist from 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 potential you know from people who were there in, in the stories during what, during the time. Yeah, what I like about that the, the Victor Pincher model in particular is is as you say the prizes enable. Uh, a democratic aspect because I think a lot of privately owned art foundations there's always this ethical issue that the art someone like Saatchi that the artists they're displaying as if on public display just like at Tate uh, are actually owned by Saatchi yeah. whereas there's this element of, um, of of having a panel of judges that aren't controlled by say Victor Pinchot that have their own that, that, that select these artists and it's it's much more democratic within that although Victor is supporting that process. I think Victor, Victor actually invented the process and invented Okay, there you are. Right. Yes, so it's quite so, a unique um, but, idea. But, but uh, what is equally important is that he doesn't get involved in any of these processes of selection. That's if you look at the at the jury, you will always see these are people who, who would not like to be told whom to select and not to select. So they're yeah. very strong, independent positions who then themselves um, without our intervention, choose someone who will go through these 12,000 applications and select the 20. So even, even we've, we've built one more bridge to make sure that the institutional potential influence is reduced maximally. 
Um, so it's, an, it's a completely open and democratic model. And um, it's really artist driven in the end yes. of the day. And it's a selection committee whom, you know, we have one voice in as the institution, as I'm one of the jury members, we appoint one, one selection member, but um, it's the selection committee that defines what they consider is the future generation. And in that sense, as an institution, we have very little say about that. Um, the only thing we have to do is we have to create a platform and, and a, an infrastructure to receive those artists then in the best possible way. And it also means that as a prize, we're continuously innovating. We're continuously asking ourselves the question, what, what's, what's the problem that we will have to look at next year? What's the position we'll have to change next year? And that goes from the very basics from an application procedure where, you know, we used to have very simple male, female um, models, and now people can actually have a, a much wider range of choice, how they, how they choose to identify themselves um, to very structural ways of how we work with artists. So I think um, it's, it's a beautiful, a beautiful model because it doesn't only give us a view on what's going on in the world, but it also forces us to be very much on, on the forefront of institutional change from, from the moment we encounter it. And, and I think by definition, most emerging artists, uh, and I'm involved with emerging artist prizes in, in, in the UK, um, most emerging artists tend to be, you know, the average age is going to be relatively young. Uh, and so I guess at the same time, you're getting young people's ideas, which are often ignored, I think, in main yeah. in political ideologies. I mean, what's what's really great also about this prize is we have this um, network of people who, who recommend artists and and um, one would think one would tend to go from the idea perhaps we can work only with those recommended artists right because that's probably going to be the artists who have a, a parkour that one wants to reward but every time we we go and look at the final list we see that about 40 percent of them were not recommended at all which is really fantastic because it means they're not yet on the map and we have an incredible network of, of, of institutions and people who, who are going to recommend and who are going to tell people, please apply. And still 40% of those are not, have, have not been recommended of the finalists, of the finalists, so of the last 20. And I think, I think that shows a the democratic nature, but also the fact that there are IDs that haven't yet been picked up by this kind of, you know, broad network of professionals who feel that this is the artist that should go in there now. There are always other artists that we haven't thought about. And that's what the Future Generation Art Prize is unique in, um, because it goes so wide. And sometimes I see artists passing by two times or three times, and the third time they get picked up. And, and why does that happen? And this happens also because a jury, or in that case, a selection committee, changes its approaches. It's not only the change of work, but it's also what a selection committee in, in one year considers as, as the most essential question might not be any longer any of, of, of importance two years later. And I think that that gives a very beautiful view also on how we as professionals all the time see the changes within the society and what is in, in, in what is happening in the art world. 
so it's it sounds like a, an ideal model to me where you've got thing to put Victor Pinchot's own collection of blue chip contemporary artists just to name some of them for the listeners uh uh Rachel White Reed is there uh, you know the YBR to, uh, the YBA artists from from the UK are there like Hurst and White Reed but also people like Luke Luke Timons and uh, many others. Yeah. Uh, so, you, so, you, so those younger artists as well, those emerging artists are, are exposed to that to very important input, uh, international blue chip works, which is so yeah, it works I, both ways. <laughs> I, I I think that was the beginning. Yeah, we had we had a number of mentor artists who were very involved, like Jeff Koons, uh, Damien Haas, Takashi Murakami. Um, and Andreas Kurski, who were the mentor mm -hmm. artists of the prize that we got involved from the very beginning. Oh, that, um, oh, they were involved in the prize. They were involved in the prize as mentor. And um, but I think I think today the prize has has really um, obtained already such a, an important status in the field of emerging artists that um, you know the moral support that they brought together with with the amazing board we have. Yeah, um, is is less essential um, because every time you see this top jury coming in uh who who are in the end defining who is the winner and the top jury brings a fantastic selection committee again with incredible experience all the time but also sometimes very young people um and and this gives such a dynamic model um that that the the, the prize continues to function and what the board does is i believe the board gives like the jury kind of a, a an in-depth um, seriousness to what this prize is and what the value is for the artist because I guess you know the prize money is a hundred thousand um, dollars in the beginning that used to be the highest rated prize uh, that is that in 2009 um, I think together with the Hugo Boss prize at the moment that these these were the two I think now the highest rated price is one million so kind of the monetary value of it has it, it's now within the top 30 so to speak but it is not about the monetary value. What it is about is being part of that selection, being part of that history on one hand, getting into a prize that is really artist-driven, that is really talking about new production and, and engaging with the artist into new production. And then even more importantly, bringing that to Venice where it has an amazing platform that immediately shows this entire group because we don't bring only the winners we bring the 21 artists to venice and we give basically completely different exhibition with them uh, to to uh, to global venice audience and and you know you know most most important people are there see this exhibition and and we know from the artists that this is an incredible driver for them in their career yeah, so they were present. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to join my students this year. We do a study trip to the Biennale, uh, and I wasn't able to join them a couple of weeks ago through personal uh, medical issues. Um, but um, but so they 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 how many years have they been at the Biennale? The 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 prize well, winners. We we did the... we do so every two years. Yeah. Um, this year we we planned this. Mm -hmm. um, so our goal we we actually rented this very beautiful building called Misericordia yeah. um, and uh, unfortunately on the 24th of February uh, the possibility of creating this prize in Venice became an impossibility because I okay. think this prize is also a celebration right it's a celebration of, yes. of emerging artists and you you want you want to to give that the right the right um, context 
and I think at, at that moment it wasn't possible to do it. So we yep. we moved on or we moved forward with with an exhibition that we called "This Is Ukraine Defending Freedom," uh, that we did in collaboration with the Office of the President of Ukraine and Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yes. Um, and uh, we've been reading um, in our newspapers about a presence at Davos, at the Davos, su Davos summit. Presumably your organization wasn't involved with that, was it? We we, we were. <laughs> you were, sorry, my apologies. Um, uh, no, so of course, it, no, of course you were, it was the Pinchot, of course it was. It was the Pinchot Foundation fine. that did it. Sorry, my mistake. Yeah. <laughs> that, no problem. I mean, again, again, this this was, this was uh, we, we, we did as an organization, um, on, on the 24th of February, you you know, it all stops, right? You, yep. for a moment, you have to say, what's the place of culture? What's the place of art um, yep. in, such a, in, in such a moment of war? But, um, you know, Putin started from claiming that Ukraine has no culture. Ukraine is no country. Mm -hmm. And it immediately, I, I guess, puts on um, the cultural scene from the country a certain responsibility it was a challenge yes. in a certain way because we we know that ukraine is a culture it's very self-confident has a beautiful history i mean it has a bloody history but but it has a strong history and being able at that moment to actually bring this history forward and show the self-confidence of ukrainian art but also the fundamental openness of Ukraine to be part of the world was something that um, we understood we had to do in Venice. And that's why we made this exhibition, um, bringing, bringing at the time three fantastic Ukrainian artists who were working in Ukraine at the time um, of the war with, I think, monumental new pieces, bringing that together with a, a group of international friends I think was the right answer, and that in the context as we managed to bring some some uh, classical pieces from Ukrainian collections, from national collections, to Venice, that shows also the deep rootedness of Ukrainian culture, and that's where um, I think the, the Victor Pinchuk Foundation and the Art Center, Pinchuk Art Center, really launched what we call the Cultural Front. And uh, we did this in conversation with the office of the president. We also did this with the blessing of the office of the president. And it was the president himself who opened the exhibition um, with, with a video, with a video um, message where he spoke about the importance of art. And I think that shows something about Ukraine again, uh, that a president who is, you know, under daily threat who can who, who has to be under a pressure that none of us can understand um who has who has a responsibility over the entire nation all the people there takes the time to think about art and takes the time to speak about art and to empower art because he understands that culture and and ukrainian culture is a particularly important aspect in surviving and this is for us, this was a very important moment. It led um, to different other projects we've done. Um, two weeks after we opened in, in Belgium, three exhibitions under the title Imagine Ukraine, uh, one in Muka in the Museum of Modern Art in uh, Antwerp, one in Bozar, which is the biggest house in Brussels, and one at the European Parliament, in the Parliamentarium. Um, and that was followed by this 
again, and I have to, I have to again take my hat off to to our founder Victor Pinchuk, who had the idea when when the the Russians were not allowed into Davos, they were disinvited. Um, the Russian house became available. So the Russian house is the place where Russia, year after year, represents itself um, to to the to the elite that that is coming to Davos. And at that time, it was Viktor Pinchuk who thought, well, this is a this is a good moment. <laughs> yeah, presumably the presumably the Russian pavilion in the Venice Biennale couldn't be used because, as I understand legally, <laughs> that remains that national, like, like a, it's like an embassy. It's Russian property. Right. Yeah, but that would have been quite interesting, wouldn't it, <laughs> if, if uh, Ukraine had moved in there? But you know, you're not you you've got the moral upper hand here, and you're not going to behave like. Putin would it, it it happened a little bit later um, in in Davos, and we did again. To, this was a project then that that was conceived together with the with the office of the president, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where we said, look, uh, let's bring here um, a reality about Russia, and that's when we made the Russian War Crimes House, uh, which was in the venue of the former Russian House, and I think it it caught the attention of the world because. Um, I think many people didn't really fully understand what was going on in Russia, uh, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think it also gives a very clear answer why concession of territory is no answer to this war, because this is not a war about territory, as, as we heard before. It's a value war. Mm -hmm. It's a war about values. And on the other hand, it's also a question, what happens if you give up territory? And if you give up territory, you also give up people what happens to these people and we know now what happens filtration camps executions kidnapping of children and relocating them to different russian cities so that they can grow up as russian children so what you have there is genocide and that's one of the most important arguments why giving up territory is unacceptable you know it's unacceptable because you give up people and you give up you know lives of those people and and cultural monuments and cultural monuments yes and 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 thinking about the present um i uh you know this came to my attention obviously in the art newspaper which as you know has, has covered the open the reopening of the pincher art center uh which closed as i understand it on february the 24th when the invasion began and has now reopened 143 days later this week do you want and, and and you've opened with a with an exhibition called when faith moves mountains and i i know you have bjorn has actually selected works from um the antwerp museum of contemporary arts mulka in antwerp which i which is a place i have been to i've never been to ukraine i'm ashamed to say i hope i will do in the future we'll change um, <laughs> but Mook is an amazing uh, museum in in in, in Antwerp, and um, I know you had to select some works from that collection to put in the exhibition in Kiev. So, what was your selection criteria for those works well, that you brought from? For, first of all, I did that together with Bartbara, Bartbara okay. with the director of of Muka, and yep. um, I invited him to to join in this impossible or at least improbable project of bringing what is a national collection as um, the collection of Muka is, is, nation, uh, is, is a Flemish collection. So, so it has a national statute. Mm -hmm. um, and to bring that to um, Ukraine, because I think 
this is all about sharing risk at a certain point. As uh, what was earlier pointed out, I'll come to the question about the selection, but what was earlier pointed out is in, in, a, in, a, in a state of war, you cannot insure works. Works are always not insurable against damages of war, direct and indirect. So when you, when you ask, can we bring a national collection to a country at war, there is not one insurance company that is saying, sure, we'll cover that. So here you have a situation where you have to say to the owner of the work, we cannot cover that. There is a risk and we will make a risk assessment and we'll have trigger points when to pull back works and so on. You can make a, pro you can make a plan, but you can never guarantee that these works will come back. So the owner of the work has to say, I'll take that risk. And here, um, I can only be incredibly grateful that Minister President de Flanders, who, who is also the Minister of Culture, um, took the decision that this was a risk worth taking. And this made it possible that we took a national collection, which is heritage, which is in a, in a certain way, uh, impossible to evaluate in, in money terms, right? Because as, as, as in, in many national museums or in all national museums, you cannot sell those works. Those works are intended to be part of, of the national collection for generations to come. And still this was this political decision to say, let art work where it can work, where it really can make a difference. And I think that was brave. Um, and at the, the day or, you know, kind of week on week when Europe decided to embrace Ukraine in the European family, you have this political gesture, which is not just a gesture, but something quite meaningful of saying, you know what, Let, let's, let's bring our collection to this place of risk where we know it cannot be fully protected, but where we know that it will have an incredible impact on the people there. It will show that we care and it will show that we want to engage. So that was kind of the, the starting point of this whole exhibition, this sharing of risk and this real commitment of a European institution and a national collection to go there in the full knowledge that things can go wrong. And um, starting from that, Bart, Bart and I had, had the interest to choose artists that first of all had an emancipatory power, um, were empowering, um, could work as a healing and offered kind of an imagination of life. I think these were thematics that we wanted to raise, but what we didn't want to do is have that exhibition as kind of an alien invasion, so to speak, in Ukraine. So from day one, we did two things. We invited a lot of Ukrainian artists together with my co-curator in this exhibition, which is Ksenia Malik. And we, we got Ukrainian artists who were making new work. So we have in the, in the exhibition about 40 artists, 45 artists, 15 are Ukrainian, 30 are international. And some of these Ukrainian pieces are absolute masterworks. Um, things that, that I, I didn't expect uh, because many of the Ukrainian artists were, were, were at the beginning of the war, there was an impossibility almost, yeah, except for some, to, to really engage with that subject 
I think today you see this engagement has real depth and not always direct, um, sometimes in a very indirect way, but incredibly strong, incredibly poetical and relevant. And um, we, we made that exhibition with the title Faith When Faith Moves Mountains, which is by the way, a title of work of Francis Alice mm -hmm. and uh, Francis Alice who is in the exhibition and who made um, a, a work where he went to Lima, Peru, and he, he, got, he got a lot of people together to move a mountain 10 centimeters. <laughs> so they had shovels and they were shoveling up the mountain to move it 10 centimeters. And that's the idea of the exhibition. That's also the idea, I think, for, for many Ukrainians. They are, they're looking at a task which is as if moving a mountain. And uh, bringing that hopeful message, I think, was important. But anchoring it into a reality through a Ukrainian artist, and I said we did two things, B, the exhibition which you mentioned before in Davos, um, Russian war crimes, um, which we also brought into the art center as a part of um, the opening statement. So from the very first moment in the circulation spaces, you have images um, that show proof of Russian war crimes. What we have not done is we haven't shown any visceral images there because people have seen them, people understand mm -hmm. them. But at the same time, it's very important that we anchor this reality all the time through the and, exhibition. And have you had uh, have you had a lot of people visiting the exhibition already this week? We we are now open for three days, um, mm -hmm. so it's quite recent. The first day we had we had five hundred fifty people, mm -hmm. and the following days we had around three hundred fifty people, mm -hmm. which is uh, in in our I mean three hundred fifty people a day, uh, which mm -hmm. is in our terms not a lot because we come from you know 1800 people a day but um understanding that you kiev as a city um lost almost half of its population yeah yeah if which which is something they they, they measure by by the amount of cell phones present in the city <laughs> and um that also the the working times of the museums are adapting because there's still a curfew People cannot cannot simply be in the city. Um, so to come to the museum, they really have to make a decision to mm -hmm. come to the museum. I think it's a very good result. Mm -hmm. And what we have seen, not only what is more important uh, today for me than the number, is also the way that people engage with it. Because what we have seen is that people are incredibly emotionally touched by this. Mm -hmm. And it shows, you know, I think, uh, living now in Ukraine means also to create sort of a bolster around yourself. Mm -hmm. You have to protect yourself, you know, mm -hmm. psychologically, you have to protect yourself from all these things that are happening. You, everybody has a, a friend or a family member who's at the front right now. Mm -hmm. And um, many people have lost, have lost people that they care about. And coming to the museum, I think it's it's opening that bolster a little bit, you know. It's somehow getting getting an opportunity to feel once again, and it it evokes many emotional reactions. Uh, a friend of mine who's also in the exhibition, Oleksiy Sai, called me yesterday to say that his son was in the exhibition and he he saw many people crying, 
Mm. Um, and I think we don't want to make people cry, of course, mm. but I think we want to make people feel. And we want to make people have the opportunity to, to think. Mm -hmm. And this exhibition we didn't make from a grand conceptual gesture. Uh, or, or, or we didn't have a big concept. We actually had a had a wish to act. It comes from almost activism, yeah. Where where Bart and I came together and said, "Let's let's do this because this is right now important." And we talked to many people. We talked to the artists. We talked to uh, the curatorial team of the Pinchukat Center. And we said, "What can we do and what can't we do?" And we listened to them. And like this, we built an exhibition that perhaps is also a space where thinking becomes possible. It's not a reflective space, but it's a, it's a space where thinking itself becomes possible, feeling becomes possible. And in that sense, I think it's very essential because in a conversation with, with Nikita Kadan, who's, who's one of the, the strong young artists from Ukraine, he, he mentioned about art, you know, it's like, it's like breathing, it's, um, it's oxygen. And right now we're living on a clock. He meant to say, you know, we don't have oxygen any longer. We need it again. And I think he's very right. Um, and, and that's why it was so essential for us to open, even, even when the stakes are still high and the risks are still high. It's really essential to be in Ukraine presence, to be active in Ukraine, because first of all, it's our home. And, and secondly, it is needed for Ukrainians who stayed to have a place where they can go and they can engage differently than than you know um, than they do in in daily in daily life. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's I've, I, I there is a website that people can view some of the works on display in the exhibition, uh, even if they can't physically get to the museum, which obviously most of us can't anyway. Um, but um, uh, you know, I think we, I think I, I, I would like all of our listeners to try and imagine what it would be like, uh, say, going into Tate Modern um, uh, when you're being, when you're, when the rest of the country is being invaded. And, and to, I think we would revalue not only one another in a different way, but also I think our cultural objects. And it, it sounds as though that's one of the things that's going on now with that, with your exhibition. It, it makes people see art in a new context. I, I don't think it's about the, so much about the subject matter. I think it's almost the it's almost the experience of going to an art gallery when you're when you're being invaded. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's one thing that you appreciate your own cultural heritage more. Yep, absolutely. I think the other thing that we wanted to to bring in is that um, Ukrainians keep thinking of Ukraine as part of the world, and they see the world is with them. And one thing is people hearing we are with you. Yes. The other thing is people seeing. Seeing that these are... works have, have come from Belgium into. And and this these are where, you know, there's Kerry James Marshall in the show. There's yeah. Marlene Dumas in the show. There's Luke Thurmans in the show. There's Berlin yes. de Broeke. Yeah. Did you these have to are... get the permission of the artists as well? You know, uh, luckily, <laughs> as these were collection pieces, that wasn't necessary. But yeah. I think I think that was the least problematic because we yeah. did communicate with the artists and we said, yeah. look, we're, we want to do this. And every single artist said, fantastic. Yeah, this is this is great. This is what I want my art to do, yeah. because I think the artists are least concerned when it comes to sharing that risk. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. Um, and it's it's almost like a proxy of their own person to be there. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and, um, and Bjorn, I, I, I realise we're coming to the end of this podcast now, um, so I, I'd just like to thank you on behalf of all the listeners. For, I, I don't know, Alina will agree with me that it's just been amazing just listening to you, and I, I, I've felt the full force of what you're saying. It's also so interesting, I think, for any like people working in the art world to hear uh, what's going on there and your your views as a as an experienced curator. But I, I think also the, the 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 whole thing about the Victor Pincher. Uh, um art prizes and and what you're doing there is a kind of almost like i would call it an art business model uh is 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 amazing and something that we can all learn from um but um let's just i think i'd also say on behalf of everyone that we can't wait to go there uh, you know at some point and we all know we will and we're all very much with you. I think I was saying to Alina that it's very easy to, for the, the, the 143 six days or whatever it is into the war, it's very easy to forget. The BBC has a daily podcast called Ukraine Cast that I always listen to and I encourage my friends and students to listen to just to keep in touch with what's going on there. There are interviews with soldiers on the front line and, 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 and but I haven't, I haven't heard so much about the art world. So I think hopefully this will, uh, will, will add something to that dialogue. Um, Bjorn, is there anything else you wanted to say before we stop the recording, or Alina? Thank you very much for this attention. Thank you very much. Well, you're you're very welcome. Hope hopefully maybe a maybe a, in a few months' time we might do another one, and 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 hopefully things might have improved by then. Who knows? Gladly. Uh, but hopefully we, you can make on the Pinchuk Art Center Prize, which is the next. No, we'll, I'll put it. Yeah, exactly. I'll I'll put all the links on the yeah. podcast, and Alina can help you with that. Alina, did you have any final words you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to thank your listeners and yourself again for the attention and um, we are very happy to contribute and uh, we apologize that it's not so consistent, but of course, you know, during this whole havoc <laughs> of events, I think this is actually going really well. Um, I mean, as, as far as, for example, it's it's so good to hear from Bjorn and then, you know, these were all exhibitions are going and I, I think there is a new reality that we probably don't see it yet in full and yep. we will see it later um, and we will be able to evaluate it from the time perspective so and um, yeah I'm looking forward to this to finish soon yeah I, well I as I say I know all of all of the listeners and my own um, prayers if you want to call it that but certainly very positive thoughts and you know whatever we're calling out to whether we whether we believe in God or nature or whatever we're, we're all there with you and we will be at the end of this podcast I'd ask everyone having listened to this podcast just to sit for three minutes or so and, and think good thoughts towards uh, Ukraine and the art world there <laughs> okay well thank you very much again I, I'm thank you okay.